China's bird flu credibility gap today, Thursday, April 11th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. China works to contain the latest bird flu outbreak. It's also cracking down on bird flu dissent, detaining people who it says are spreading rumors and panic. Also today, researching sexuality in the Arab world. I didn't have problems getting people to talk about sex. I had difficulty getting them to stop. And later, British actor Stephen Fry. He's diplomatic about Margaret Thatcher, but he does remember her rough edges. I was at parties with her where she literally would say to the artist's face, that is rubbish. Plus the story behind the pickpocketing crisis that shut down the Louvre in Paris. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Don't panic, but the latest outbreak of bird flu in China has claimed a tenth human life today. This is not the same strain from years past. This outbreak centers on a new form of the bird flu virus known as H7N9. One reason this strain may be harder to combat than previous ones is that it's very hard to detect in birds. They show no symptoms. The good thing, though, is that H7N9, like previous strains, is transmitted from animals to people, not from person to person. Chinese officials are reporting three to five new human cases a day. Not everyone there agrees with those statistics, but challenging them can land you in jail. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing says some who question the government tally are being detained. There have been about 11 people detained so far for, quote unquote, spreading rumors online for spreading panic. And the government has said, you know, look, we've released the cases that we have confirmed. And if you're going to release a lot of other information online that we can't confirm, that just gets people worried and it doesn't do anyone any good. The detentions are for up to 10 days. And uh, you could certainly say it's a little heavy handed. But there are other illnesses that people come down with in China, too. There may well be cases of pneumonia that, in fact, were H7N9. But whether there's actually any kind of a cover-up is, you know, very hard to know at this point. The World Health Organization is saying that it believes the Chinese government is doing a pretty good job at the moment of trying to keep up with the virus and to keep it from spreading further than it has thus far. So as of yet, the Chinese government has not been able to identify the actual farms where this could be coming from. What they think is that the virus mutated, but that it came initially from wild birds from outside of China. Um, Some of the uh, live markets where chickens were sold have closed. Uh, Older people in particular have homing pigeons as pets. They're being prevented from letting their birds fly freely since some pigeons have been found to have H7N9. And uh, so far, it appears that the the virus has not shown up in pigs. So at least it, it appears at this point that pigs have not been the mixing vessel for the virus to be able to then jump to humans. Right. Um, so they're, they're basically just trying to move down the line and figure out what they can about where the virus came from and then what to do about it now. I mean, some people on social media across Asia have been uh, mocking the Chinese government, especially after a local Department of Health uh, official suggested that a Chinese herbal medicine 
could prevent this strain of bird flu? Is it uh, kind of opening up H7N9 to all sorts of treatments on social media? Right. So this is a balangan, which is a root, which is sometimes used to bring down fever, traditional Chinese medicine. And of course, it was kind of silly for a local government to be recommending that people take this as a way to prevent uh, getting H7N9 bird flu. I find it interesting that on social media, instead of people saying, oh, yeah, you know, let's uh, go buy vinegar to counteract SARS, as happened 10 years ago, there's some actual informed skepticism of, okay, so you guys haven't even really identified where this virus comes from or how to treat it, and yet a local government is recommending that we go out and buy Balangan. Is this because your family has a corner on the market or something? So it's it's entertaining, and it also suggests there's kind of a higher level of uh, of scrutiny and of satire online than there right. used to be. The world's Asia correspondent Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing with the latest on Chinese reaction to a new and deadly strain of bird flu. Mary Kay, always good to speak with you. Thanks. And good to speak to you, Marco. Thanks. China may be cracking down on bird flu chatter online, but here in the U.S., public health experts see great value in what's said on the Internet about infectious diseases. In fact, a growing number of projects are tracking the spread of germs by watching social media. It's a concept with great promise, but as the world's Ritu Chatterjee reports, it also comes with some challenges. In an office at Children's Hospital in Boston, software developer Clark Freifeld opens his web browser. This is Health Map. Health Map is a site he helped create. The homepage shows a map of the world, cluttered with pins or markers in different places. Each marker that you see on the map represents a particular location, and I can click on one of those locations, and then I will see uh, a listing of recent events and infectious disease that have happened for that location. He shows me by clicking on Hong Kong. There's some interesting uh, information about the recent bird flu cases uh, that have happened in China. The application continuously scans tens of thousands of websites in 12 different languages, looking for information on potential disease outbreaks. Freifeld says the information comes from news reports, blogs, health agency websites, and informal discussion boards for health professionals. Because we're collecting the information together, you know, that can give uh, public health officials kind of an early picture of what's going on. And early is important when you're trying to stop a pandemic. But how can you be sure the information is accurate? That's a challenge for many Internet-based efforts to track diseases. Take, for example, a relatively new platform that listens in on Twitter conversations. It's called Mappy Health. That's M-A-P-P-Y, health.com. Brian Norris is one of the creators of the platform. Which basically ingests tweets based on certain terms related to disease, and then we do analytics on those tweets on our platform. Those analytics look for trends. For instance, has there been a sudden increase in people tweeting about cholera or measles? That might indicate an outbreak. That's why Norris says Mappy Health can serve as an early warning system. And a good example of that would be this year's flu season. The platform recorded a spike in flu-related conversations as early as October, suggesting that the flu season had started earlier than expected. This observation, he says, was later confirmed by more rigorous data from government health officials. But Norris is quick to point out that not every spike is an outbreak. Take, for example, a recent spike in Twitter conversations on pneumonia. Pneumonia saw a spike recently on March 28th, and then it it tiered down, and then you see another 
sort of mini spike after it around the 30th. Closer scrutiny of the content of the tweets revealed that people weren't saying that they or their friends had pneumonia. Rather, they were tweeting about the recent illness of Nelson Mandela. The case illustrates one of the main challenges of using social media to track disease outbreaks. John Brownstein is a pediatrician at Harvard Medical School and one of the creators of the Health Map website. So if there's an event happening in the news about illnesses that are taking place maybe halfway around the world, people will start their comment about that event. And so you might have difficulties separating what people are talking about in terms of themselves or commenting on that event. Other problems have cropped up with another cutting-edge tool, Google Flu. Google Flu analyzes how frequently people search for the word flu and related terms in Google. It uses that information to compute what percentage of people in a population may have the flu. The tool is being used in 29 different countries and provides a near real-time estimate of how bad a flu season may be. Officials have found that it's mostly reliable. But last year... Google Flu's estimates for peak flu in the U.S. over Christmas were almost double the CDC's. It's not clear why the estimates were so far off. But a spokesperson for Google.org says that researchers will update the model based on data from this past season. Public health experts aren't discouraged by these errors. Larry Madoff is an epidemiologist at Harvard University. He says tools like Google Flu will get refined with time. And already, they're doing a lot of good. Use of these types of tools has helped to dramatically decrease the amount of time that it takes to discover an outbreak. That's what he found in a recent study. Back in the 90s, it took, on average, a month for an outbreak to occur and be reported publicly for the first time. Today, it takes about two weeks. And that time, Madoff hopes, will continue to shorten as disease surveillance on the Internet gets more sophisticated. For the world, I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Of course, if you're trying to tackle disease, there's no substitute for heading out to where the sick people are to help them. Back in the 1980s, Philip Greitzer worked in Africa as an epidemiologist for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He recently returned to Africa as a journalist, and he shares his thoughts now on coming face-to-face with a disease he'd only read about in textbooks. In the shade of a mango tree, I find a dozen men and women sitting in a circle. I pull up a white plastic chair and join them. Hamasu Issa is a big man. He's dressed in a pale blue flowing robe. Because of the robe and his size, you don't immediately notice his left leg. It's huge and covered with hard and wrinkled skin, like an elephant's. Issa has elephantiasis. He's one of thousands of adults in Nigeria with enormously swollen legs, arms, and breasts. He and the others here are part of a support group run by the Carter Center. Another member of the group is Asebe Bawa. She's a teacher. Both of her legs are swollen. In a mixture of Hausa and English, she explains when she first developed the illness about eight years ago, she went to a hospital, but the doctors couldn't find anything. She thought she'd been put under a spell. People started saying it maybe it is witchcraft, that maybe oh I match something a poison or so. People started saying all sorts of uh, words. Later, she learned the truth. Elephantiasis, also called lymphatic filariasis, is an infectious disease. It's caused by tiny worms spread by mosquitoes. 
In this region of Nigeria, the Carter Center has run a program to eliminate the disease, and it recently announced success. It's the first time new cases of the illness have been stopped in such a highly affected area. This success could lead to the elimination of the disease in the entire country and eventually its eradication worldwide. As someone who's worked in public health, I applaud this effort. But meeting these patients, I can't help thinking, even when the disease is gone, it isn't the end. Elephantiasis is incurable. People with it have to take great care for the rest of their lives. Their swollen body parts bruise easily and can get infected and patients have to cope with the stigma of their deformities. Hamasu Isa, the large man with a swollen leg, says he lives alone. No family. He says he was engaged to be married, but his fiancé's parents called it off because of his disease. Lymphatic filariasis is one of about a dozen diseases that are known as neglected tropical diseases. They occur mostly among the poor in rural communities. Only recently have health organizations focused on preventing them. Thanks to the control efforts here, elephantiasis has not been neglected. In fact, people like Esabe Bawa and Hamasu Isa may be among the last of their kind. But for them, the disease will never disappear. Which made me wonder, when a disease is eradicated, like smallpox or polio or lymphatic filariasis, what happens to those who've already been affected? When the disease is gone, will these people get the care and support they need? Or will they, like their disease, become neglected? For The World, I'm Philip Greitzer, Joss, Nigeria. And we've got photos from that support group in Nigeria at theworld.org. Still ahead on The World, actor Stephen Fry on a very telling video clip of Margaret Thatcher. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Sex in the Arab world sounds like a provocative topic, right? It's also, of course, a matter of fact. After all, the population of Arab countries is growing like almost ever, everywhere else. But discussing sex in the Arab world is different. It remains a tricky subject, even in the wake of the Arab Spring revolutions. Shireen El-Feki is the author of Sex and the Citadel, Intimate Life in a Changing Arab World. The book is a product of five years of research. During that time, El-Feki traveled to several countries with a special emphasis on Egypt and essentially asked people to open up about sex. What they do what they don't, what they think, and why. Now, I realize, depending on your perspective, this could be considered a dream job or a slightly dubious occupation, mm -hmm. but uh, it had a very serious uh, professional and personal intent. You write that this book isn't supposed to be an encyclopedia or a peep show, but your chapter titled Desperate Housewives does get surprisingly explicit in the conversations you have with your subjects, which range from sex toys and impotence and sexual positions. Were you surprised how ready the people were to open up and talk about this? I was. When I began this project, I was concerned. How easy would it be for me to interact with people? But it turned out to be surprisingly easy, and I think there are really two reasons for that. It's my insider-outsider status. So I am half Egyptian, I am Muslim, and so people felt that I had a connection. Mm. And I grew up in Canada, 
you look at me right now? And I have all the fair features of my of You my look we- like you come from the West. Of, yeah, of my <laughs> Welsh mother. And that was actually an advantage because there is a perception among many people in the Arab world that the West is easier when it comes to sexual matters and less judgmental. And so people were willing to open up to me in ways that they probably wouldn't have done if it hadn't been for my sort of outward appearance. And at the end of the day, I didn't have problems getting people to talk about sex. I had difficulty getting them to stop talking about sex. Did that surprise you? Yes and no. There is the taboo around sex and the silence, but that's largely in public discourse. In private, women talk about sex all the time. Men talk about sex all the time. It's no different than anywhere in the world. The problem is that there isn't a lot of information for many people. So sexuality education is a huge problem in the Arab world. So they're eager to learn. Absolutely. And many young people are turning to the Internet for information. As in anywhere in the world, there is some good information and there is some very unhelpful information. Well, let's talk about a couple of people whom you spent time with. One woman, Marwa Raha of Egypt. You describe her as the agony aunt of the online generation. She publicly states that she's not a therapist or a doctor. What is she providing Arab youth that makes her so popular? She's providing openness and a willingness to talk about issues ranging from uh, masturbation to premarital sex to girls who want to move out. And her advice is culturally relevant. She's not suggesting that people throw Islam aside and try to lead a liberated Western sexual life. What Marwa argues and and what I argue in my book is that within these borders, there is considerable flexibility on a large range of sexual issues. I guess she's kind of the Dr. Ruth of Egypt. Is that right? We we have people who are exactly like Dr. Ruth. The uh, pioneer in this is a woman called Heba Atp, who uh, broke into Egyptian homes or Arab homes in 2006 with her uh, series called Kalam Kabir, uh, Big Talk. I have been out with her in Cairo and people come up to her and thank her for her series and the advice that she's offering. But as one young woman uh, told me, I really like Heba Ott. My mother, she doesn't like her so much, but I like her. But you know what? Heba Ott says I should ask for my sexual rights, but I cannot do that. My husband would think I was not a good woman. Wow, they're really battling this in the open air. Absolutely. You only need to go on the Internet, as Marwa's site has done and many, Mm. many others, to see that young people are starting to ask questions. Why are things this way? And that is part of, I think, a very positive development after the uprisings of 2011 and beyond. The really revolutionary aspect of these uprisings has been that people feel free to speak out now. And they are speaking out about politics. And increasingly, they are starting to ask questions about religion because politics and religion are now entwined in political Islam. Politics and religion are two of what we call the three red lines in the Arab world. These are things that you're not supposed to challenge in word or deed. Politics, religion, and what's the third? Ah, what do you think it is? Sexuality. Absolutely. (laughs) So one of the arguments I make in the book is that we need to be asking these hard questions in our sexual lives that we are starting to ask in politics. It sounds like sexuality in the Arab world could lead to some fairly unpredictable places. And I would guess that not everyone in the Arab world is happy with what potential lies there. Are there forces opposing that reevaluation? Absolutely. The most obvious ones are uh, Islamic conservatives who have a very uh, austere, um, strict interpretations of Islam, which offer very little flexibility. There are also liberals who oppose this. And if I can give you one example. So I was down in Tahrir 
Square uh, in 2011 talking to young people about the connection between political freedom and personal freedom. And could they imagine that the revolution they were fighting for could actually lead to greater sexual freedom? And one young man I met who was fighting in the side streets against the security forces for his vision of a democratic Egypt was absolutely horrified. He said, no, 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 no. This is not the freedom we are fighting for. We are Muslim. We are Arab. We believe in the marriage institution. We want social freedom. We do not want sexual freedom. So were you optimistic after doing the survey of all these people in the Arab world that even after the Arab awakening where everybody's concerned about democracy and and that future, will that kind of end up by hijacking this sexual awakening? And could one get subsumed by the other? I think they're complementary. If I can just give you one example of how this is playing out on the ground, if we look at the highly controversial subject of homosexuality, in the Arab world. There are very smart young people who are trying to figure out a way to find a place in the emerging order. And what's very interesting is that they know the history of the gay rights movement in the West, chapter and verse. And they can tell you with devastating precision why they think it is not going to work in the Arab region. And as one of them cogently pointed out to me, there's no point in us trying to fight for sexual identity politics. I don't even have an individual identity, this woman told me. Hmm. She's Lebanese. And she said that, for example, in the eyes of the state, I am registered as the daughter of my father. And if I were to marry, I would then go on the state records as the wife of my husband. Shireen, how can we talk about a sexual identity if we don't even have a personal identity? First things first, basically. And what these young activists are fighting for and struggling for is let us try to achieve justice and dignity and freedom and equality for everyone. Let us not just try to carve this out for a special group because it doesn't make sense if one group has this and the majority do not. Shireen El-Feki, author of Sex and the Citadel, Intimate Life in a Changing Arab World. Thank you for coming in. My pleasure. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a musician in Northern Ireland picks up where his photographer father left off. I'm interested in the white between the orange and the green, the flag, where the, the artists should occupy My father did. He refused to be pigeonholed. And that's very difficult in a society like Northern Ireland where people are really obsessed with taking sides. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's not just in England. Across Europe, you find royal families in many countries. Plenty of people want to abolish them. This is the 21st century, after all. But by and large, Europe's royals retain public support because people still see them as powerful symbols of tradition and national identity. In the best of cases, their main relevance is to serve as moral compasses of sorts. 
Well, as the world's Jerry Haddon reports, the Spanish royal house seems to have lost its compass, and with it, its once sky-high popularity. For a long time, Spain's royal family seemed to be doing things right, surviving in a modern world. And actually, it was even a symbol of it, thanks to King Juan Carlos Alfonso Victor Maria de Borbón y Borbón dos Sicilias. La corona, símbolo de la permanencia y unidad de la patria. This is the king back in 1981 speaking to the nation. There was a coup underway. Rogue military officers were holding the parliament hostage at gunpoint. Incredibly, the king stopped it with his words. In his televised speech, he said the crown, the symbol of Spanish tradition and unity, would not tolerate anyone messing with the country's new democracy. That day, the king scored a coup of his own, because for the next 30 years, when most Spaniards thought of the palace, they'd equate it with democracy. It helped that Spain's royal family was relatively discreet, modest by royal standards at least, and well-behaved. But then last year, things fell apart. This is King Juan Carlos again leaving the hospital after hip surgery. He broke it in Botswana on a discreet vacation to hunt elephants while he was honorary president of the World Wildlife Fund. In a brief statement, the king said sorry to his country and promised never to shoot another large mammal as long as he lived. But a lot of people began shaking their heads. Is this where our taxpayer money is going, to fund royal hunts? And during this economic crisis, the royals became fodder for Spain's evening TV wisecrackers. On this comedy show, the host raps about Juan Carlos of the Jungle and his hunting bungle. And then, before the laughter had died away, another royal scandal began. The king's son-in-law, the Duke of Palma, faces trial for allegedly stealing millions in donations to the foundation he ran with his wife, the king's daughter. She's under investigation now, too. That's a first in Spanish history. And the latest, the king himself may face his own investigation for allegedly hiding a multi-million dollar inheritance in Swiss bank accounts. A recent public opinion poll suggests royal popularity is at its lowest point since democracy in 1978. Suddenly, the once taboo is being openly discussed. This is a socialist member of parliament calling on the king to abdicate. It's the end of an era, said Pere Navarro to Spanish reporters. Next in line is the royal family's great and last hope, Prince Felipe. By all accounts, Felipe is a straight shooter, discreet, handsome. He married a smart, popular TV news anchor a few years back. But even with his untarnished image, Felipe the King would have a hard time restoring the throne's reputation and role in a country likely to struggle financially for a few years to come. The other day, Felipe and his wife Leticia were booed by a boisterous crowd as they made one of their typical visits to a local community center. This is also something new. In the meantime, conservative Spanish lawmakers are trying to throw the royals a line by subjecting the House of Bourbon to new financial transparency rules being debated in Parliament. It'd help avoid further scandals and be a way of saying, look, they're just like us. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Royals in France once had the Louvre as their palace. Today, though, the Louvre is one of the largest museums in Europe and the world. 
25 to 30,000 people visit the Paris Museum each day this time of year, so you'd think they'd have security under control. Well, apparently not. Yesterday, 200 staff members walked out for the day, essentially shutting the museum down. They were protesting against having to put up with pickpockets who've been targeting staff and tourists at the museum. Maya de la Baume is a reporter for the New York Times in Paris. She says pickpockets have long plagued the museum, but their attacks have been increasing lately. It has been an ongoing problem at the Louvre, and I even talked to a staff member yesterday who's part of one of the major unions who said that they were faced with pickpockets almost every day at the Louvre. So the Louvre closed yesterday, and it's very rare when the Louvre closes, but it reached a point when workers were desperate about security issues, and they decided that they would walk out. They said there was a risk on their lives, so they had to walk out. But it shows how significant security issues at the Louvre are now. And when security guards' lives are at risk, that would indicate a pretty severe pickpocket problem. Describe who these pickpockets are, for the most part, and how they've been operating in the museum. Workers at the Louvre say that those pickpockets are mostly very young, we could say children, because a lot of them are minors, who come from generally Eastern or Central Europe. We generally call them Roma. And those children, they sneak in the Louvre and sometimes, you know, verbally attack people, especially guards and and surveillance agents, and also rob tourists. A lot of the workers I spoke to yesterday say that those pickpockets are very aggressive. Right. Yeah. Describe some of the the, the techniques they've been using to get their booty. A lot of the workers I spoke to yesterday say that they're very organized, that they act in groups inside the Louvre. And what they do is when tourists have their attentions turned away from their belongings when they watch paintings, those pickpockets just steal bags. Yeah, it's it's very off-putting. I mean, I've seen this in action, uh, not necessarily with with Roma kids, but uh, street kids in, in Italy. Italy and in France, and they confuse you. And before you know it, you've lost a wallet. Yeah, exactly. Now, we can't just look at uh, these uh, Roma pickpocket kids in a vacuum. I mean, let's put it in context. When when Nicolas Sarkozy was president, he was harshly criticized for shutting down Roma camps across France. Are you able to make a connection between the closings of those Roma camps and this current situation at the Louvre? Yes. Under Sarkozy, it's not just the crackdown on Roma camps. It's also the government implemented what we call in France an arrêté anti-mendicité, which means that police officers were allowed to arrest beggars in specific tourist sites in Paris. And this has been enforced under Sarkozy. But now that we've changed government a year ago, Hollande has basically stopped the government from enforcing this law. But uh, we have now an interior minister who's also very focused on the Roma problem and trying to build up new strategies. Reporter Maya de la Bombe with The New York Times in Paris. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Stay in Paris for a moment now for our GeoQuiz. There's a subway line that runs through the city. The number 11, also known as the Lila line. It's mentioned in this French tune from the 1960s. Now, Shazam might help you with the answer to this quiz, or you could play fair and just listen to these clues. The song is called Le Poinçonneur des Lila. That's the Lila ticket puncher. His work is so boring, says the singer, that at the end of the day, he just wants to put a hole, a bullet hole in his head. 
dark lyrics from one of France's darker but also funnier singers. And now the late musician is getting a metro stop named after him on the Lila Line. Our question for you, who is the singer? You'll have to wait till tomorrow for the answer. That leaves you plenty of time to play the geotexting game. If you haven't signed up yet, just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. And tomorrow we'll tell you more about this famous French singer being honored with a new metro stop. Je ne vois briller que les correspondances. Parfois je rêve, je dis vague, je vois des vagues. Et dans la brume au bout du quai, je vois un bateau qui vient me chercher. In Britain, Stephen Fry is known as a man of many talents. Among other things, he's a screenwriter, author, playwright, journalist, poet, and comedian. Oh, and an actor, too. Did I mention actor? This week, American TV viewers will be able to see Fry in a crime caper called Doors Open, airing on the Ovation Channel. Doors Open is based on a book by Scottish crime writer Ian Rankin. It involves art stolen from a Scottish gallery. I have it all planned. I'm going to need your help. Help? With what? I have chosen one or two pictures that are close to my heart. The cattle, Cameron, nothing, nothing too ostentatious. I believe we can remove them without too much trouble. Remove? You mean steal? No, I don't mean steal. I mean, I mean, I mean liberate. More like a heist, like the Italian job. If you like, only less Italian. That's Stephen Fry playing the part of Professor Robert Gissing in Doors Open. Uh, Stephen Fry, this is not the Italian job, but you do get to play a thief. What did you like about this character, Robert Gissing? I liked the fact that he was angry about the injustice to him as a lover of art. There was an, a sort of obscenity in the fact that art could be bought as an investment and kept in a safe. And so for him, the act of Stealing paintings that are kept in repositories and cellars is actually a, an act of liberation. Right. <laughs> it's not stealing. Although, no, exactly. although the idea of stealing, of risk-taking and the possibility you might serve time, I mean, you can relate, can't you? I can, as it happens. As, as a naughty young boy, I was a very, um, a very restless, disturbed child, shall we say. And uh, I ended up in prison uh, at the age of 17, 18, having... Um, liberated a credit card (laughs) (laughs) and um, um, I was the despair of my parents I I think now it would have been perfectly clear I would have been diagnosed as uh, we know with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and I certainly had all those qualities I mean if you had if you had gotten an official diagnosis of ADHD or bipolar at the time you probably wouldn't have served uh, time for three months in prison no, but then I wouldn't also. Uh, it's so it's so difficult, isn't it? To talk about you know the taking the right path or the wrong path. If you end up in a place where you're happy or at least reasonably content, you cannot be certain that any of the doors you took were not responsible for you being there. Ian Rankin's story encapsulates so many sides of the global recession: banks in crisis, the real estate market crash, the prospects of long-term unemployment, all tied into this art heist caper. Why did you want to make this into a film? It was just an instinct. I I happened to hop onto a plane, and unbelievably for me, being a bit of a technical addict, I had forgotten my um, e-book reader. So I I had to grab an atomic book made of atomic paper at the airport. And the one I grabbed was number one at the time in the best-selling list, but it was by Ian Rankin. And I'd never read, to my shame, an Ian Rankin book. And as I read it, I just had this nameless feeling that 
I could see it, that it would make a, a good adaptation, and, and I liked the, the idea of it. Right. And speaking of airplanes, you also uh, happened to be on an airplane uh, when the news came through about Margaret Thatcher earlier this week. I follow you yes, on Twitter. That's so right. That. Um, um, you it, was, said... it was somewhat misinterpreted because I immediately tweeted, was, was in the air when I heard about Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> and some people thought that meant that I was transported with joy, that I was literally floating on clouds of air with, with delight, which whatever my views about her as a politician, I certainly wouldn't be so indelicate as to celebrate her death in the way that some have. Well, you tweeted um, that she was such a force in Britain through your university days, uh, through to your she 30s. Was. What kind of force? The best version I could give is actually a quotation from Eleanor Fargin, who wrote this wonderful book when I was a boy called The Kings and Queens of England. And there were these little poems. So it would say, Bluff King Howell was full of beans. He married half a dozen queens, for example, to <laughs> describe Henry VIII and his six wives. And the one about Elizabeth I ended with nasty, jealous, suspicious and mean, but England was England when Bess was the queen. Uh-huh. And there's something about that with Thatcher. I'm not saying she was nasty, jealous, suspicious, and mean, but certainly England was England when Thatcher was the queen. You know, as a walking companion or someone to go on holiday with her, she'd be very low down on my list. She was pretty philistine. I was, I was at parties with her where she, she literally would say to the artist's face, that is rubbish. <laughs> you know, I mean, she absolutely had no tolerance or interest in anything outside her own zone, which was a pretty limited one. But that single-mindedness, I suppose, is a sort of ghastly dose of nanny medicine that Britain needed at that time. The best thing you tweeted this week, though, was that clip of uh, Margaret Thatcher on Swedish television oh, and being please. asked by their anchor to take a little hop in the air. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting that the only two people who refused to do the little jump in the air are Margaret Thatcher and Madonna. Really? And without saying too much negative about Madonna, they both have a rather humorous quality to them. Do we not agree? Both... I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, she just, I think it's silly. No. Why should I? Uh, well, we've, like take, we've taken a few tangents here, but uh, we should remind our listeners that we were talking to you about uh, the new film Doors Open, which airs this weekend on the Ovation Channel. Stephen Fry, thanks so much for your time. A real pleasure. Nice talking to you. A quick note now about another notable Brit, that scientist Francis Crick of Watson and Crick fame. They won the Nobel Prize back in 1962 for their work describing the structure of deoxyribonucleic acid. We know it better as DNA. Well, Crick's Nobel Medal, the actual prize, just sold for two million bucks at a New York auction. The head of a biomedical firm in Shanghai and Silicon Valley snapped it up today. Crick died in 2004, and his family is now selling off some of his possessions. Yesterday, an, an anonymous buyer shelled out nearly $6 million for a letter Crick wrote to his 12-year-old son about his discovery of the double helix. Crick's family says they'll donate some of the proceeds to scientific research. This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. We're going to talk troubles for the next few minutes, the troubles in Northern Ireland in a bit, but first trouble in Myanmar. Muslims there are scared. A wave of anti-Muslim violence in the central part of the country killed dozens last month. And days after calm was restored, a fire broke out in a Muslim boarding school in the city Yangon. Thirteen boys died in their sleep. Reporter Gabriel Paluk went to the funeral and spent time with the mourners. The crowd roars with grief as each body arrives. Cha Win and his wife have just watched the bodies of their two sons being washed and prepared for burial. 
The boys were 13 and 15 years old. I feel very sad today. I used to feel sad when my son suffered small injuries. Now their whole bodies are burned and they are dead. There are no words to express how deep my sadness now is. One of the mourners yells out that Buddhist fundamentalists use chemical weapons to kill the boys. He says they're victims of religiously motivated attacks that started outside Yangon, and now that violence has arrived here. Authorities say a preliminary investigation indicates an electrical failure sparked the fire, but many here don't believe it. Cha So is a Muslim religious leader in Yangon. There were all sorts of rumors circulating because people want to know what happened in the building, and they're very scared. They're angry about the deaths of those 13 children. Township authorities have imposed curfews and sent out neighborhood patrols. In the meantime, stickers with the numbers 969 have started to spread on taxis and businesses in Yangon, identifying them as Buddhists. The numbers stand for the different attributes of the Buddha and are thought to ward off evil. They're inspired by a revered Mandalay monk called Uiratu, who was once imprisoned for spreading hate messages against Muslims. Now, neighbors in Yangon's ethnically and religiously diverse communities are living on edge. Tulu Ray is a young Burmese man who started a group to foster religious harmony called Coexist. He says there are many roots to the tension and violence, but religious hatred isn't the main factor. He says it's more a response to years of military rule. It is a, a reaction to all these oppression and discrimination by the junta for f- over 40 years that they take out on people who are easy to discriminate. Yeah. Coexist has started its own sticker campaign. It's been handing out stickers that say, we are Myanmar citizens who do not discriminate by either race or religion. Today they are handing them out near the burned school. The building's charred window frames have already been repainted at the request of authorities. Teacher Yenang Thane was one of the first to arrive on the scene after the fire was extinguished. He says initially he believed it was a deliberate attack, but not now. He says when the police gave a press conference, he learned that the school kept gasoline on site to run the generator during power outages and that teachers had used pillows stuffed with old clothing to try to put out the fire. So he no longer believes it was arson. But he says if police don't do a thorough investigation to answer everyone's questions, there could be violence. For The World, I'm Gabrielle Paluch in Yangon. Finally today, a new take on the troubles in Northern Ireland. The violent struggle essentially between Catholics and Protestants was extensively documented in the 1970s and 80s by award-winning photojournalist Bobby Hanvey. Those photographs have now inspired his son, musician Stefan Hanvey. He's written songs to go with the photos. His project is called Look Behind You, a father and son's impressions of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Stefan Hanvey remembers growing up with his dad's photos all around. His journey, his photographic journey, was always very present in the house, you know. We were either in the darkroom developing with him or watching, when we came back from school, the photographs drying on the living room floor. And then the last stage, of course, was seeing them in the newspaper. So he archived society during this period, and he's still, he's still doing it, actually. Emotionally, too. I mean, your dad, like any good reporter, would sit by the police scanner and wait for these Correct. events to happen. So I imagine there you are at home with your dad just, like, waiting for these tragedies to occur. I mean, emotionally, that must have really impacted you over time. I, I guess it did. 
I'm at a juncture now in my life where I am looking back, hence the, the title of the, of the project, and Nuclear Family is very much a going-home record. That's ha- the title of your second album. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So it's one project with two sides. Your father is a journalist, uh, had to remain objective through this. I mean, still, when you're living there, through the troubles, I mean, were you partisan at all? Did you take sides? I mean, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? Or does it even matter to you? Um, it doesn't really matter. I mean, partisan, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because it's at the heart of my project. I go about investigating or looking um, at the notion that the end of art is peace. I'm interested in the white between the orange and the green, the flag, mm. where the, the artists should occupy and my father did. You know, he refused to be pigeonholed. And that's very difficult in a society like Northern Ireland where people are really obsessed with taking sides. If the end of art is peace, I'm wondering where was photography, visual arts, music during kind of the, the worst of the troubles? It's a good question. I was eight years old. I listened to a song written by um, a guy from Derry, Stroke Londonderry, right? Because that's a hot mm-hmm. potato in itself. Right. Usually the Catholics call it Derry and Protestants call it Londonderry. And there's a songwriter from there called Phil Coulter, wrote a song called The Town I Loved So Well about a guy who leaves and comes back to find it in ruins, you know. And I, I sort of was able to associate the place that he was uh, singing about in The Town I Loved So Well with my environment. And I was like, oh, hold on a second. I'm there. I'm here. I'm in this place, you know. That was your world. It's it's interesting, though, because in the catalog for Look Behind You, you mm-hmm. make a point of how maybe culture was residing in other places, like uh, language, place names. I mean, you mentioned Derry and Londonderry and the whole canard over what is it going Very to good. be called? And maybe you can just talk about some of those and how that language became a culture in and of itself. Good man, yeah. I deal with uh, an area in Look Behind You um, called Denshankis, which is Irish for the, the lore of place names. And how place names like Ballygolly, Loch Gall, Greysteel in Northern Ireland, there are Sandy Hooks, there are Auroras and um, Columbines. So it's basically how these places are put on the map for all the wrong reasons. You know, if you say Ballygolly now to people in any capacity, the first thing that they think of is the, the bus bomb. So I look at that. Uh, as well, and I bring that up, and I, I try to put it in context, you know, it's for American audiences, because that's why I'm here. I'm here to kind of give impressions of, of growing up in, in Northern Ireland for people and to try and make it as, as, as clear to them as possible. Pour me a drink of whatever you think might Help me feel half as good as you're looking tonight Secrets and Lies there from Stefan Hanvey's new CD, Nuclear Family. Hanvey is in the middle of his Look Behind You tour. The show features his dad's photographs. We have an audio slideshow that's really cool featuring some of the pictures at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. the same thing as me falling down I hit the ground, heard my knees start kissing my pain away this is the pain that grown-ups feel And the kind that can't be kissed away And you know The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, 
macfound.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.